Well, hello there, and welcome to another episode of The Ethics of Academia. In this episode, I'm going to be talking to Jason Brennan. Jason is a professor of, and let me get the full title because it's quite long, Strategy, Economics, Ethics, and Public Policy at the McDonough School of Business at Georgetown University. He is, despite that title, primarily a philosopher. He works and writes, I guess, from a largely libertarian perspective. Uh, he's a very productive scholar, has published a, a lot of books, I think 20 plus books in recent in the past decade and uh, quite a number of papers. He also has a fairly strong set of views, I think, on the purpose of higher education and the moral failures of higher education. He wrote a book with Philip Magnus a couple of years ago called Cracks in the Ivory Tower, The Moral Mess of Higher Education, which was an obvious motivation reason to invite him to participate in this podcast. So I think we discussed a number of interesting questions. We started off talking about research, and I questioned the sincerity or seriousness of the policy proposals in some of Jason's research. And then we have a bit of a debate or back and forth about the merits of casualization in in higher education i mean i just to be clear just a friendly conversation um and i agree with an awful lot of what jason has to say and particularly his critiques of the way in which we incentivize people to do phd degrees Uh, but i also um, have points of disagreement with him and those are fleshed out to at least some extent in this conversation so, uh, without further ado, I'm going to hand over to the conversation that I had with Jason. I hope you enjoy it, and as per usual, if you do enjoy it, please rate, review, and share this podcast. Uh, anything you can do that helps to grow the audience would be most appreciated. Okay, Jason, so one of the first questions I usually ask people is about their research. You know, what, what do you actually research? What topics do you find important and interesting? And we can proceed then to ask why you look at those topics. Great. Thanks for asking. Um, I usually find topics interesting that are sort of at the intersection of politics, philosophy, and economics. Um, I don't have like a deep ideological reason for doing that. It's just that uh, I tend to find things interesting where often what I notice is that in political philosophy, uh, you know, philosophers typically don't have much training in economics, political science, sociology, or the social sciences. So there's a tendency for philosophers to kind of assume that institutions and norms and society works a certain way. And uh, because they haven't done any actual research or reading, they're wrong about that. So oftentimes I think the theories that we come up with are mistaken because they're they're relevant for a, uh, a world different from ours. And so because just thanks to my background, I've read more of that stuff and researched more of that stuff than others. I often notice they're making that mistake. And then I think that kind of clears the ground for doing new work. Um, so that's sort of where I'm coming from. Um, I end up teaching classes on those kinds of things as well. So that, that might mean things like uh, pathologies of democracy, uh, public choice critiques of academia, which is relevant to what we're going to talk about today, um, taboo markets. Uh, right now, I'm working on a project about what does it mean to be a good representative, um, given that, first of all, voters don't really know what they're doing. And when they vote for you, they're not really, it turns out they're not really all that supportive of your politics. But then secondly, you as a politician probably don't know what you're doing and are kind of incompetent too. So the question is sort of like, what does it take to be a good representative when you're actually not going to be a good representative? Um, So those are some of the things that I work on. 
Yeah, I might ask you a question about your research. So the book that you're probably most well-known for, or certainly the book that is most cited, is Against Democracy. So it's certainly a, you know, a bold title and a bold thesis. And I was wondering a bit, because it struck me when I was reading it and when I was reflecting on the relationship to some of the work that I've done, I, I sometimes do a similar thing to you in that I, you know, I set out a bold thesis that I think a lot of people reading it would reject or have some intuitive reaction to it. And then my goal in a sense is to persuade you that this is actually the correct way to think. Not, I don't do that purely as a, you know, a game or an exercise, but usually because I actually do believe what I'm writing. But mo most of the things that I write about are fairly far removed from, you know, practical politics and everyday lives. I mean, there's some extent that they are related to those things. But obviously, if you're arguing against democracy itself, as a notion or as people conceive it, that could affect real world policy. So I guess, I guess what I'm asking is like, do, do you really believe in what you're arguing and do you want the world to change in the way that you envisage in that book? Yeah, great question. Uh, I, yeah, I think everything I said is honest, um, you know, including I, I have at the end of the book concerns and worries about like why I think I might be mistaken. Um, I talk about, uh, Edmund Burke's concerns about social change. And I'd say that those uh, amount to a pretty good objection and why we should maybe experiment with this, but not try it. I think the, the hidden subtext though, is when people say, oh, so you must be an epistocrat. Uh, for those who haven't read the book, epistocracy is a representative governmental system in which in one way or another, uh, votes are weighted according to some sort of measured political knowledge. So it's like, take your current political system, but add that in and then it becomes epistocracy. Um, and people are like, are you actually in favor of that? And I'm like, do you think that's actually just? And I'm like, no, not really. Uh, and that's in part because I think, you know, I, I was convinced by Jerry Cohen and David Eslin that we shouldn't dumb down the requirements of justice to accommodate the failings of human nature. So, no, I think justice actually requires something called cooperative anarchism. Uh, and that doesn't necessarily mean that all things considered in the real world, we should do it. Uh, it's kind of like it turns out people are pretty morally depraved and it might be that anarchism won't work given that depravity, but justice requires anarchism. So I think for me, the very fact that we have democratic political systems or political systems in the first place is already means we're in the realm of injustice. We're not doing what we ought to do. So I kind of read it not as is epistocracy just compared to democracy, but rather of these two unjust systems, which one is the least unjust. Um, and so for that reason, I think when people they often have a very strong emotional attachment to democracy, which I don't, because I just see democracy as a system of moral failure. If only people were morally decent, not angels, not morally perfect, not flawless, virtuous phronomoi, but just morally decent people who didn't like, you know, prey upon one another, exploit them, harm them, lie to them, cheat them and steal their stuff, we would all be anarchists. So yeah, so I think that's the hidden uh, like part of it that people don't know that, uh, you know, I'm not saying this is what justice requires. I'm just saying that this might be less unjust than the thing we're currently doing. Yeah, and I mean, I like the you know critique that you have, which is pretty much upfront in that book, is is the critique of the idealizing assumptions that many political philosophers make when they're discussing justice, right? And so your work is in part an attempt to look at what politics and democracy is like in the real world and review empirical evidence as you mentioned at the very start and you know i think it's all well done but i suppose uh, i was just curious as to how keen are you to see your proposals or your arguments translated into kind of real world policy real world change is that something that you think about when you are writing i mean i would like to see places 
experiment with this. Uh, so relatively high functioning democracies, I'd like to see some of them experiment with epistocratic reforms. In particular, what I call in the book simulated oracle, but I really should have called it enlightened preference voting. That's the thing I think we should try. So an enlightened vote preference voting system would be you know, on election, whatever, whatever it is you're voting on, I'm agnostic about what gets voted on as far as the book goes, but whatever it is you're going to vote on, um, whatever system you have on election day, um, everyone's allowed to vote, including children and cats and dogs and your house plant, it doesn't really matter. Uh, let everybody vote, but when they vote, they do three things. Uh, first, they tell us who they are by, you know, giving us their demographic information. And there's a question about how you would collect that properly and how you uh, demarcate that. Um, secondly, you take a you tell us what it is that you want. And the third thing is you take a quiz of very basic political knowledge. And this quiz doesn't determine whether or not your vote counts, but rather um, when you have these three sources of information, who people are, what they know, and what they want, you're able to statistically estimate what a demographically identical pop public would have wanted if only it had been fully informed. You're also able to use that to see to test the effect of things like race or sex or income and so on on people's outcomes. So you can uh, use a system like this to de-bias democracy. So if you have like a problem where, you know, perhaps, um, you know, like imagine you have a system where it's 90% white and 10% black, uh, even if people are fully informed, it might be biased towards white people's interests. So you can then use this kind of voting system to check to see whether the outcomes are being driven by race and potentially correct for that. So that's the thing I'd like to experiment with. Uh, I'd like to see maybe Denmark try it or the state of New Hampshire or you know, maybe a few other places. I wouldn't, I wouldn't try it in Louisiana in the United States. I wouldn't necessarily try this in say uh, a lot of like Eastern Europe or places where like democracy is maybe less functional. And that is actually one of the problems with the, the theory. It's kind of like the reforms that I propose would work best in the places where democracy works best. Uh, and that's just, how the world works. Unfortunately, institutions um, are not the same in terms of how well they function from place to place. There's a lot of different reasons for that. So, so maybe the places that sort of need the reforms the most are also the ones that wouldn't be able to pull them off. Yeah, I mean, we could go on a much deeper dive into the thesis of that book, and that's not the purpose of this, this uh, podcast, but I definitely encourage people to read it. And um, I guess you've got this uh, debate book as well, actually coming up uh, with Oxford University Press, which um, it will kind of look at both sides of this in a bit more detail. So um, I would also encourage people to read that. Switching gears slightly, though, uh, and this is going to be a two-part question. I'll ask the first part first, which is about your research. You strike me as somebody who's like a super, very productive, and I'm sure you, you get told that all the time as a researcher. Um, I think you've published somewhere in the region of 20 books and maybe 70-odd articles, possibly more. That was just based on my last review of the of your material. Um, why do you write so much? And should you be writing that much? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, I'm sure there are people who think I should write less because they don't like what I write. Uh, but uh, honestly, I, I think the question is more, should really phrase like, for people who have a job like mine, why don't they write so much? Because frankly, it's not that hard. If you have a position like the one that I have, it's really not that hard to produce this much output. Um, I don't work that much. Uh, I, I might work 40 hours a week, probably not on the typical week. Uh, I have a good work-life balance. You know, I cook dinner for my kids. I do the laundry. I have a rock band on the side. Like I, you know, go to their theater stuff. So I'm not like obsessing over work and spending every minute of my day working. But if you have a position like mine, and, and a lot of people do who are in what we call R1 universities in the States, then you really don't spend that much time teaching and you don't have that much in terms of service obligations. So I... 
I spend approximately 100 hours a year uh, in an academic year in the classroom. So if I'm working uh, 2,000 hours a year, maybe I'm spending 100 hours in the classroom. Um, there might be an additional, I don't know, 50 to 100 hours that um, are dedicated to teaching, having to do with grading and meeting with students, or um, I do a lot of mentoring of independent studies and that kind of thing. Uh, and then, you know, I have a, maybe 100 hours or so, or sometimes more of service work. And then that leaves at least 1,500, maybe more like 1,700 hours a year for writing. So if you can just spend like three or four hours every day writing, you can produce this much. That's, that's really all there is to it. It's just, um, I make writing a priority. Um, I try to dedicate a certain amount of time to it and that works. Now, as far as like being productive, uh, I don't know if I need to publish as much as I do. I try to write things that I think are interesting and which will like help the field in some way that'll advance a dialogue or advance a debate, challenge things that people take for granted. I think that's a big part of what philosophy is for. But um, I, I do think there's an issue where without naming names, I have a colleague who basically hasn't published anything uh, in any peer reviewed outlet since I got my PhD or, or since I got my PhD or maybe since I got like my job at Georgetown. Um, uh, not someone in the philosophy department, by the way, so you're not like doxing that person, but uh, uh, that person's job is primarily to do research and they're taking up spots that are being used by researchers and that person's barely doing any work. So I do feel like if you have a job like mine, you are hired to be a researcher. I don't know what the minimum is that you need to put out, but you need to do some of it. Um, you need to be a productive person because in a way that spot, if you're, if you're taking up a research spot and you're not doing research, then you're, you're denying that opportunity to somebody else who would have used it for that. And I think that puts some responsibility on you. Yeah. I mean, that, that's an interesting way of reframing the, the question in the sense that given the kind of role that you have, you have a duty to do research and produce research. You don't know what the actual optimal level or expected level is or the ideal level is. But there's certainly a lot of people in academia who are well under that level. I'm sure we all know them. Um, and maybe there are some that are, that are over that level. I suppose, like I was thinking, reflecting more generally, and this is sort of a feature of the book that you wrote with Philip Magnus, which we'll probably talk about a lot now, which is a question of the kind of incentive structure in academia. Do you, in, do you think that, the way I was going to phrase the question, and you might flip it on its head, but the way I was going to phrase the question was, do you think that there are bad incentives when it comes to the overproduction of research that encourages the overproduction of poor quality research? And is that a problem that we should care about? Or do you think I'm thinking about it the wrong way? No, I do think there are. Um, the reality is that, uh, as I say in the book, um, academia rewards research more than teaching. Maybe it shouldn't. Uh, I'm not taking any stance on whether it ought to or not. Um, there, are, there are reasons for this having to do with like deep economic theory, uh, just the truth is that uh, it's harder it's harder to find a good researcher than it is to find a good teacher. Um, it's easier to replace them. So even if teaching overall is more valuable than research, um, it's kind of like the issue, the so-called diamond water paradox in microeconomics, where water overall is more important than diamonds, but getting the next unit of clean water is a lot easier than getting the next unit of a clean diamond. And so uh, the cost to get a diamond is higher than, in, in the value of an individual diamond is higher than the value of an individual bottle of water, even though all the water together is more valuable than all the diamonds. So similarly, uh, maybe all the teaching together is more valuable than all the research, but getting the next researcher is kind of more difficult. Uh, so that's that's part of what goes on and why researchers are paid more. But you know, for whatever reason, prestige, income, and so on are attached to research, not to teaching. 
Um, a good researcher in the United States might make something like five times as much money as the uh, a person who's a really good teacher, but not a good researcher. Um, it, it's less dramatic in other countries um, in terms of like the pay disparity, but that's what it works out to be in the States roughly. Uh, and so people are incentivized to produce that. Um, now at the very top level, you know, I don't, I don't think if you go to say New York University in, in the United States uh, philosophy department and, and look at the research those people are doing that you think, oh, they're overly productive. Most of this stuff is garbage and doesn't need to be written. Most of it's, even the stuff that you write that's kind of boring is still pretty good. It's still interesting. It still is doing something. Um, I think what's weird though, is when you, oftentimes when you drop down to lower ranked schools where research is not highly prioritized, you nevertheless see a lot of people publishing like really kind of low quality stuff in marginal journals. And I think that might be in response to incentives where uh, their dean might reward them for publishing anything, even if no one reads it in, in some like marginal journal, even if it's not prestigious. And so they maybe are spending time doing work that no one will read and will have no effect on the field and which maybe isn't very high quality. And that might be a problem because when you have a job like that, you are fundamentally a teacher and you probably should be spending more of your time mastering teaching rather than writing marginal research. You know, and again, that's not a dig on teaching. I, I think teaching is really important. I think we, we, for the most part, don't do a very good job of it and we're kind of blameworthy for that. So uh, yeah, I, I do think there's perverse incentives. And even, even as I mentioned in the book, um, I talk about the incentive structure at my own university. So I work fundamentally, my, my tenure home is in a business school at Georgetown. And the way that our system works is if you're a brand new tenure track assistant professor, when you get a merit evaluation at the end of the year and you get your raise, we actually do get raises every year, 60% um, of your merit evaluation and your raise is based upon your research and the other 40% is based upon teaching and service. When you come up for tenure, the reality is the decision is almost 100% based upon research. And the same true when it also is true when you come up for a full professor. We briefly will talk about teaching, but it almost never has any effect on anyone's decision. So, and then on top of that, if you're a good productive researcher, you'll get a research bonus in the summer that's worth two ninths of your base salary. You'll get a course reduction and uh, additional research funding for things like travel and so on. So all of the money at my own university travel or is really attached to research, not teaching. And so I think that incentivizes people to do more research than they otherwise would. But we're also a research university, so maybe that's fine. Maybe that's just a way of making sure people do the thing that they're hired to do. Yeah, I mean, I suppose that part of this question comes back as well, I think, to funding with the kind of teaching research balance and how we think about it. I mean, Georgetown, I, forgive me for my ignorance, is that a privately funded university or is it a publicly funded university? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a private university, but of course, the reality is in the United States that the private universities receive extensive amounts of money from various kinds of governments, especially the federal government. So no, no public university is really fully public and no private university is really fully private. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. That sounds about right. I suppose what I was thinking about was in terms of whether you're predominantly tuition funded or predominantly you know, funded from other sources. But if you're, your research time if you think about it, who's funding that? Is it primarily students of Georgetown? I'm not, I'm not picking on you particularly, but I'm just saying in general, is that, the, is that the feature or is it that your research time is funded by other sources? Yeah, generally um, generally at Georgetown, people's time is funded partially by tuition and partially by um, like endowment and grants, general grants to the university. 
Um, in particular for me, um, because I have a chair, I'm a Flanagan professor. Uh, my A lot of my time is funded by Robert Jane Elizabeth Flanagan of, of Maryland. So they endowed the chair. That's what pays for like my summer bonuses and things like that. So I, I in particular, I'm getting extra funding from the Flanagans, but uh, but in general, it's a combination of tuition and endowment. Yeah, so it was the reason I was asking that question was to link back to how I would feel about the proportion of my time dedicated to different things, depending on where how it was funded. Um, you know, you I mean you mentioned the breakdown of figures at the start there that you spend approximately was, is it about two hundred hours on sort of non research related things, or was it slightly more than that, maybe two fifty. Yeah, then, it depends. Year to year, it's probably, I'm sure it's under 400 a year, um, but yeah. Yeah. So I let's. So the majority of your time is spent on research. Right. But I suppose, I mean, if I, if I was in a position where I felt like the majority of my time was, was spent on research, but that wasn't being funded, that was being funded through student tuition, I'd kind of wonder then maybe I should be dedicating more time to teaching since they're the people kind of paying for the, the role that I'm occupying and a lot of the research is not directly connected to what they're doing. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that idea. Yeah, there is a puzzle about that. And I sometimes ask my students about this too, because we spend time in some of my classes talking about um, incentive structures and what, how incentive structures affect behavior. Um, we even spend time on the question of like, why do they go to college? Why do they, why do they get a financial return to college? Why is it that people who attend university in the United States and elsewhere tend not to actually learn very much, but nevertheless, they get a pretty large financial reward for doing so. Um, and, uh, and so one of the questions that I posed to them is, you have chosen to go to a university where fundamentally rewards accrue to faculty on the basis of the research and teaching is a distant second, right? You as a, as a student, you would think primarily you care about the quality of teaching, but in fact, you chose to attend a university where teaching is treated as a different second, distant second. Why is that? What is your incentive structure? Why would you make that choice? Um, what explains your behavior? And then also what explains behavior? Like, you know, you're not maximizing the amount of learning that you're doing. You're not even sort of failing, not simply failing to maximize, but you're probably empirically speaking, not doing that much. Why is that? What, what's making, why is it that you'll like shirk your classes, try to take easy classes, try to like avoid learning things. You're when a professor cancels class, you're not angry that you've like wasted your tuition dollars, but you're, you're happy that you get the week off. Why are you like that? So um, given given that most students really don't want to learn that much, empirically speaking, they don't, uh, and including students at elite universities, um, I feel like that isn't quite as problematic as it otherwise would be. Um, they're basically there to, con to consume prestige. Uh, in a way, going to a school like, uh, let's just take a more prestigious university, say Harvard or Stanford, you know, probably the two most prestigious universities in the United States, um, going to a school like that, what you're doing is proving to other people you're the right kind of person. You get this kind of certification that you're a Harvard, you're the Harvard kind of person, uh, and that's what you want. Um, now, there are people who, who really do want to learn a lot, and I don't really feel bad for those students because the students who want to learn a lot and consume as much education as they can do. They find a way to do that. They take independent studies. They read more. They come to professors' office hours. I think the people who really want to learn take it upon themselves to get the bang for their buck. And, you know, when I say bang for the buck here, um, you know, that, that might sound American centric because, uh, you know, tuition is expensive here. And in many other you know, countries, uh, your tuition is paid for by the government. But here, I also mean bang for the buck in terms of time, like you're still dedicating your time and you're also dedicating social money, like money from, from the government as well. So 
so I do mean bang for the buck, regardless of how it's funded. I, I feel like the people who want to learn get what they want. And the other students, uh, they're not necessarily there for the learning. They're there for the certification, for having kind of an extended summer camp atmosphere, for networking and that kind of stuff. And they mostly get what they want too. So I, I guess I don't, I don't feel like time is really the issue, to be honest. Um, I think what's more of an issue is the quality of teaching itself. It's not that we need to spend more time teaching. It's that we don't do a very good job of it. And one of the reasons we don't do a very good job is that um, the psychological model upon which most professors base their teaching is mistaken. Um, so as I say in the book, uh, you know, the most common thing you'll hear when you ask people like, well, why should we make people take, uh, I don't know, a class in a foreign language if we don't expect them to actually use that language? Or why should we have them read, say, literature by Gabriel Garcia Marquez and, and have to analyze, like write you know, essays analyzing like, you know, the symbolism of magical realism in a hundred years of solitude, or uh, why do we have them write philosophy essays or, or do some chemistry if they're never going to be chemists? Why do we make them do all these different things? And the argument that everyone gives is you'll develop these general skills, which can be transferred to any domain of activity. So we're, we're basically shaping people into more skilled practitioners of whatever it is they're late, going to do later in life. And that turns out to be false. It turns out to be false for two reasons. It's false for one, because empirically speaking, most people for most people, learning is highly compartmentalized. You only become good at X by practicing X. And even if the skill that you learn in X could be um, transferred to domain Y, the overwhelming majority of people, even smart people, will not actually spontaneously transfer that skill. So there's an extensive literature in psychology on what's called transfer of learning. And the literature overwhelmingly says and has said for the past hundred years that people don't transfer learning. Professors do, and pretty much no one else does. Uh, so that's a problem because uh, you know the psychological presupposition of liberal arts education is that people transfer learning, but they don't. The other reason it's problematic is just empirically speaking, people don't actually develop their skills all that much. Uh, the majority, I don't have data for Ireland. I don't know what, what, what it would be like there, but at least in the United States, the majority of students, including the majority of students at elite universities. So this means like the most gifted students, the highest IQ students, the highest achieving students, the majority of them don't really develop their skills. They, they barely get one sigma higher on uh, certain skills after like a few years. And for some skills, they actually get worse. People tend to get worse at mathematics while they're in college uh, as compared to how they were in high school. So, uh, so that's like a real issue. It's like, we're not teaching them very well in part because our psychological models of learning are unrealistic and they're known to be unrealistic, but no one ever checks on them because they don't have an incentive to do so. They just kind of copy what their professors before them did. Yeah, I mean, we've kind of jumped into a question, uh, the discussion of teaching, which is something I wanted to talk about. So, I mean, you've said two things there that I want to probe in a bit more detail. One is this notion that students, particularly at elite universities, are primarily consuming prestige. And, you know, one of the people who endorsed your book is Brian Kaplan, who's famous for, you know, putting forward this case against education. The education is primarily about signaling. My sense from this discussion is that maybe you buy into a lot of what he argues, is that correct? And if so, if, if education is primarily about signaling, what do you think it is you should be doing in the classroom? Yeah, um, well, for one thing, I have to help help them with the signaling, I guess. But uh, in a way, I try to avoid that because I'm, I don't necessarily think that even if they want to consume signals, uh, they want to like signal to other people that they're the right kind of person, that that's something I'm obligated to assist them with. So a good example of this would be uh, at Georgetown's business school, until recently, we had um, a mandatory curve in our classes. 
So what our ranking, when we, when we graded people, we weren't grading them in terms of their absolute levels of skill, but we were just producing kind of a crappy ranking. Um, I don't know why we didn't just rank them one to 50 or something like that. Instead, it would be, you know, using a letter grade to approximate a rank, which makes it like a less informative ranking system. And this is a problem in part because if we're, most business schools don't do this, um, at least not at the undergraduate level. So that means that when we actually send the letters outward, the typical employer who might look at someone's transcript doesn't even know that it's a rank. They think that it's something else. Uh, so that it wasn't even a very good system for that. But um, I actually spearheaded an effort and succeeded in getting uh, the curve eliminated. Um, and one of my arguments is just that it was inhibiting learning and uh, creating perverse incentives. So what I do instead is I use a teach to mastery method now. Now that I've eliminated the curve, I tell students, look, I want all of you to get an A in this class. What I mean by an A is I have certain absolute standards in terms of writing and, product and productivity that I want you to achieve. And I'll tell them, you're allowed to submit uh, revised, as long as you submit your work on time, you can revise your work as often and as many times as you'd like um, with no particular set of rules other than please don't waste my time and don't waste yours until you get an A. And it mostly works. Um, people write papers, they might start with a B or a C and they revise them and then they end up like most of my students end up with A's by the end of the semester because they just revise stuff till they get it. So even though I know they're there to consume a signal, I don't, I don't really like that. So I don't play along with that game. I'm just like, if you're going to take my class, there's stuff I want you to learn and I'm going to try to incentivize you to actually learn it. Uh, yeah. So singling, singling, I get that that's why they're there, but that's not my job to actually play along. I think it's kind of a, a bullshit game. Yeah. So, okay. So um, if you're teaching them to mastery, like, so what is it that you want them to master? So what are the valuable skills or valuable knowledge that you want them to get out of your classes? And does it, I suppose it could vary between classes, but how do you think about that? Yeah, you're right. It, the, the con it varies between class because sometimes there's substantive material that I need them to learn. Uh, you know, I teach, I teach classes on a wide range of things. I have a class called Managing Flawed People, um, and it's all about the imperfections of human nature and why people of moderately goodwill nevertheless mess up. And so a lot of the skills are about how do you use this information in the real world to make it more likely that you and those around you behave well? And the activities are kind of, the, the activities that I give them are sort of about learning to do that. Like, uh, so the most common thing I do in my class is actually, regardless of which class it is, is because I'm so worried about transfer of learning, um, the, you know, I'm, I'm teaching mostly business students. I'm not here to train them to become junior philosophers or junior social scientists. I'm not training them to be get to get to a level of writing that they're good enough to go to graduate school, right? That's not what I'm there to do. What I want them to do is take abstract and important principles and concepts and use it in the real world. However, it turns out transfer of learning is a myth. People will not spontaneously um, do that. You can't just say, well, hey, by the way, now that you've learned cost benefit analysis, make sure to use that all the time. You have to train them to actually use it in the real world. So for that reason, um, all of my classes have the same core activity, which I call the generic thing, the ethics project, or in some classes I call it the political economy project, depending on what the class is. And this is all the project is. I tell them, get together in a group, think of something good to do and do it. Um, and then I give them up to $1,000 of funding, which we have from external donors, um, some alumni, uh, money from a bank, money now from uh, the John Templeton Foundation um, to uh, help them with that activity. And they have to actually do something in the real world. And then as they do it, I have a list of questions I want them to think about before they do it and then to use to analyze their actions. And these questions are all things from 
psychology, philosophy, management theory, economics, and so on. And it's all about training them to actually take these abstract concepts and use them in strategic decision making and spend a semester doing that. So that's what I do. That's how I, I, I radically changed my teaching when I came to a business school from being in the liberal arts, uh, because um, basically what happened was I realized like when they hired me, I'm like, I shouldn't be in a business school. I don't, I'm not, I don't belong here. I'm not trained for this stuff. I have, you know, a small amount of business, um, uh, a small amount of time working in business, uh, and I don't have a business degree. So why the hell would they hire me? What am I doing? I don't really know what it takes to teach business students. So that prompted me to read a lot about the psychology of learning. Um, I then learned how depressing it is. Um, and that caused me to kind of radically change my teaching methods to prioritize training people to use skills in the real world rather than just teaching them something in the abstract and hoping that when they leave, they use it in the real world. Right. I mean, one of the things in your book is a critique of grading and the grading practices. So I was wondering, maybe you could discuss a little bit of you know, the critique that yourself and Philip have of grading and what grades mean in higher education. And then how do you think about that critique in your own process? You're adopting, there's a name for the style of teaching that you adopt, or I think it's a contract teaching or something like that. Is that roughly the idea behind it that you're getting them? If they put in a certain amount of work, you can get them to the A. I think that, I think that was the name of, of that model of teaching. Yeah. But anyway... Yeah. So how does that kind of model or approach relate to that critique of grading that you have? But you have to kind of lay out the critique of grading first, I suppose. Yeah. The, the problem with grading is um, there's, there's a couple of problems with it. One is empirically speaking, in, there's not a huge amount of research on this, but the research that does exist says for the most part that grading does not motivate students to learn much more. I mean, on the margins, it can, I don't want to overstate that, but in general, it's not the most effective system in terms of promoting student learning. Um, once you have it in place, if you sort of make certain changes to it, you can reduce learning. But what, what actually makes people improve the most are just certain kinds of written comments on their quality of their work without telling them much about the grade. Um, when, you, when you introduce a letter grade, people tend to focus on getting that grade. And when you don't have that, they tend to focus just on the quality of their work. Um, so it would be better if we really cared about student learning. It would probably be better if we just adopted a model where we said, like, you know, you have an assignment, they pass in the assignment, you go, here's what's good about it, here's what's bad, why don't you redo it and get and fix it. Um, and that would be what they do. And there wasn't really a grade attached to it. Uh, but we're not, it's unlikely that schools are going to do that, only a few colleges do. Um, so, the, but the bigger issue, I think, is that grades don't have any kind of standardized meaning. Um, so in some, you know, even at Georgetown, if you take up, up until like this current year, if you took a class in finance, that meant an A meant that you were in say the top five or six students in a class of 50. And if you took, got an A in uh, like English, that meant that the professor thought you were good or excellent or something. And if you got an A in chemistry, that might meant that, you know, you averaged 93% on multiple choice tests, right? And then you really can't commensurate these things. So if you have if you think of like grades as a stand-in for um, different kinds of measurements. So, you know, if I, if I said, what is your GPA? And I said, well, your GPA is ranked 42 out of 45 plus good plus 93% divided by three. That doesn't mean anything. It's incoherent. But um, when you, uh, when you substitute a letter grade, you're inserting information that isn't there to begin with, where you're treating all of these classes as if they were commensurate, and then you're, you're averaging them. That's just, it's just incoherent voodoo mathematics. It doesn't actually make any sense. Uh, and worse, um, 
it turns out that most professors will grade the same thing pretty differently depending upon things like their mood, like whether they've had coffee, how recently they've eaten lunch, how tired they're feeling, whether they're grumpy because they've been like, you know, reading about Supreme Court decisions on Facebook. That kind of stuff has a pretty strong effect on how professors grade. There's a number of experiments that show that where they'll, they'll literally take the same set of essays and give them to the same professors over and over again, like a few weeks apart and have them grade them. And they'll, they'll vacillate by about like 10% in terms of the grade that they give um, to the point where they say that grading is not quite random, but fairly randomized. So that's pretty disturbing too. Um, so I think the whole practice of grading is surprisingly bogus. Uh, I, I didn't expect to say that when I started writing the book, we were going to talk about grade inflation and whether or not there was evidence for it and what it all means. But then as I did more research on it and started reading the, the literature that exists, I kind of found that the practice of grading is really not well-founded. Uh, it's, it's not standardized. We treat it as if we're, it's, it's basically a system in which we're all using the same language, but we mean different things by our language. What you mean by an A and what I mean by an A are very different. And we treat them as if they're the same. Yeah, so I mean, I I kind of share some review and the, the fact that it, there it's non-standard approaches and the grades mean different things. I don't know how familiar you are with like grading systems in UK and Ireland, which is where I'm based, um, where you know anything over seventy percent is considered a first-class grade, um, which I was roughly I was the equivalent of an A grade uh, from where you were looking at it, but. It sort of does this bizarre thing, and I, I say this to students openly in my classes that, you know, I never grade anything really above an eighty because if you look at the official description of, of a grade over ninety or a grade over eighty, it has to be like supreme, you know, flawless work, and I don't even think I could produce that kind of work, right? So right. it has it has this weird effect whereby I really kind of grade effectively between like thirty and seventy. That's where most of the grades go, and most of them probably go within an even more narrow range. And then you're making these sort of like really seemingly arbitrary calls between somebody getting like a 63 and a 64. So, so it all feels a bit, a bit artificial or a bit strange. But then given that kind of critique of grading and the kind of voodoo mathematics behind you know, general grade averages and things like that, how do you think about your grading in that system? Yeah, so that's one of the reasons I was so opposed to having the curve in the first place. Um, there, there are other reasons having to do with it creates a zero sum mentality. Students compete against each other. They don't cooperate uh, and so on. So that's why I switched to uh, the teach to mastery model. Um, uh, like, I really don't want to play the game of credentialing you to outside employers. I don't, I understand that you as a student might care about that, but I don't think that's valuable and I'm not going to play along. So uh, instead I tell people, look, there are skills I want you to learn. I have a way of measuring whether you, well, I, learn is even the wrong word. There are skills I want you to demonstrate that you have. Maybe it turns out you have them coming in, all right? Uh, so I want you to demonstrate that you have those skills and I will basically certify that you do by giving you an A if you do it to the level that I expect for this kind of class. And if you don't, then I will help you by allowing you, like telling you what you need to do to do better and giving you as many opportunities as I can in the course of a semester for you to get to that level. And if you do, you get an A. So that's that's really it. It's, um, it, it's really the model that people use outside of academia when learning actually matters. Like that, that's what's funny about this. Like if you're learning to become a pilot, it's not like, it is true that say piloting, you do, you do take certifications and tests and you might have different skill, like grades effectively on that. But at the end of the day, there's just a level of mastery that you must demonstrate or you can't be a pilot. Um, I mentioned I've worked briefly in business. I worked at a company called Geico, which is an insurance company in the United States. 
Uh, Geico, if whatever job you have there, there's an expectation that you have a certain level of mastery and that's what's important. So they train you and train you and train you to get to that level of mastery. And it's either you master it or you fail out. Like we don't, it's not like if you get the equivalent of a C, they put you on the phone and have you start handling customers or, you know, they make you a manager and have you like manage other people. No, it's either you've mastered it or you don't work there at all. Um, so that's, that's what people do when things actually matter. I mean, even like a piano teacher, the, like for a recital, the goal is that you master the piece that you're, that you're playing in the recital. It's not that you do it okay. So that's why don't we do the same thing for the learning that we're, we're trying to teach them? Isn't the goal for them to actually learn this material? Uh, so I, I basically am trying to teach them or use a teaching method that's based upon the assumption that what they're learning is actually worth doing. So either master it or, or not. Um, yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense to me. I mean, in law, which is the area that I teach in, there's a thing they talk about in the professional sector, particularly in UK, of so-called like day one competencies. That you know, the, the first day that you're on the job, you should be able to do the following things. And it has always struck me as odd that we don't teach and grade to a similar standard. I mean, I think about it like there are students in my classes who get passing grades, like bare passing grades, who I'm pretty confident shouldn't really be practicing lawyers any day soon um so it's kind of odd that i we have that uh, approach and we're also like massively incentivized i don't know, i don't know if this is true in um in georgetown but we're massively incentivized to pass students to show that our retention rates are a certain level you know students don't drop out year on year but maybe it's a, it's a different philosophy in place in georgetown yeah i think Many universities in the United States have that issue too, where um, they're so tuition dependent that losing a lot, they, they admit a not large number of students who are not really meant to go to college. They're not, they're not prepared to be in college. Uh, and so they're, they're not writing at their right level. They're not good at mathematics. They're not, they're just not at that level of skill, but those schools are often highly tuition dependent. So if they were to enforce pretty uniform and reasonable standards, half the student body would fail out and then they wouldn't have enough money to run the school. So you, you do see that universities in the U.S. that are like that often have strong incentives to pass everybody. And I have friends that work at places like that, and they've shown me the emails from their dean saying, please pass everyone. Do you really need to fail this student? Can we do something else? Or they'll even override it. They'll fail the student, and then like the deans will override it to keep them in. Uh, Georgetown doesn't have that issue. Um, it is, it's not that we're not in a way tuition dependent. We're not as rich as Harvard where we could just afford not to charge people tuition, but we have such a large number of people on the wait list who would be happy to replace anyone that we dump that uh, it's kind of like if we fail out one student, we can always replace them with somebody else. It's not a concern. And we don't have that many students who are likely to fail out anyway. So no, I never, we never get pressure to keep anybody unless, um, you know, Maybe, maybe they're like a student who uh, they're a first generation college student or something like that. And then like the, the deans might feel like they have a special obligation to like try to help rehabilitate that student if they have a problem. Um, that's the only time I've ever really seen something like that. If they feel like, oh, this is an underprivileged person. So we should give them like a break and try to fix like what's wrong with them uh, in terms of their lack of skill, uh, but not like keeping them along for the sake of tuition. I don't, I don't see that at my university. Yeah. And to be clear, I mean, in my university, it's not, there isn't like a formal pressure from above to, to pass particular students. It's more just kind of a set of norms as developed whereby you do almost everything you can to make sure that people get through. And because one of the things that we look at are the overall retention rates from year to year. This is actually more of an issue when I was in the UK, but um, it's, it's an issue in, in Ireland too. But look, time is kind of rattling on. And there were two things that I definitely wanted to talk to you about before we wrapped up. 
one of which I think I agree with you on, and the other one that I don't agree with you as much, although you can kind of convince me that I have the wrong view on it. So the first one, which I think I agree on, is to do with PhD students. Now, it has always struck me as odd that one of the things that I am incentivized to do and rewarded for doing is to have lots of PhD students. I think this creates a lot of problems in practice. Um, I mean, two, two, of, two problems that I've encountered firsthand one is that there are some people who take on far too many PhD students, so they don't, they can't possibly do a good job supervising all of them to completion. And some of these students have been left in the lurch as a result when that person moves on to another institution because they're rewarded for how successful they are in attracting PhD funding and students. I can think of a couple of examples of people who've done that. So that's one problem. The other problem for me is that, and this is something you may point you make in, in the book as well, is that most PhD students want jobs in academia and the job market in academia is not massively healthy. I mean, it depends where you look and it might, might be healthier in law than it is in like philosophy, let's say, but it's not obvious that, to me that there's enough jobs for all these students. And so it seems to me that we should be you know, somewhat selective about it. We shouldn't just take on as many PhD students as we possibly can, and we shouldn't be incentivized to do that. So, yeah, I mean, What's your position on PhD students? Do we graduate too many PhD students? And should I, as an individual academic, try and take on fewer students? Yeah, great question. Um, I, I basically agree with what you said. Uh, we do have, we have these perverse incentives where you look more prestigious when you have students, your university looks more prestigious the more students you have. Depending on what kind of funding system you have, um, often it's the case that universities will receive more money from the government or from others if they have students, even if they're, even if their PhD students never get placed anywhere or almost never get placed anywhere, having low quality students or just unsuccessful students is for some reason more prestigious than not. Um, as a faculty member, um, having students is useful because you can have them do your grading. You know, like when it, my previous employer was Brown University in Rhode Island, and we had like a pretty robust PhD program there. And I, I remember I was teaching a class where I would have like 300 students in this giant class and I didn't have to do any grading at all if I didn't want to. I could just give all of the essays to my three teaching assistants and have them take care of it. Um, so that's nice. And it's nice to teach graduate classes because rather than teaching sort of general survey courses, you can teach a course on some esoteric thing in you know, cutting edge research that you really care about. And that's more fun to teach and it's a lighting teacher load and so on. So we have all these like incentives to have students, even if they're not very good or don't have much of a future. But as you said, the reality is surveys show the overwhelming majority of PhD students want to become academics. They want to be professors. And that's true not only at the top ranked programs, but at the bottom ranked ones. So at the very least, what programs should do is disclose to people the truth. Like what is the likelihood you will get a professorship? Where do people get placed? What percentage of people get placed? How many people never actually make it on the market? Because I think if you did that, then it, it, you're now shifting it a little bit like people know what they're getting into. So if you decide to go to like the 125th ranked program in the United States in English, like the chances of you getting a tenure track job are effectively zero. But if you come in knowing that and you still do it, then I think the burden has now shifted to you and, and you're not being deceived. No one can claim you're being exploited. Like you took the risk knowingly. Um, but the reality is that like schools mostly try to hide that information or they, they provide some of it, but not enough for people to make an informed decision. And so people come in kind of like not knowing the risks and we sort of take advantage of them in various ways. Uh, and I think that's problematic. 
Um, I, th I think, yeah, we're graduating too many people. And again, it varies from field to field. Uh, getting a PhD in economics is a pretty safe bet. Even if you go to a low ranked school, you'll probably get a six figure job working at a bank or working for the government or a think tank. It's really safe. Getting a PhD in chemical engineering, it'll pay for itself, even if you go to a crappy school. But getting a PhD in philosophy or English or some other field, your chances of that turning into something productive for you are significantly lower. Um, I don't overstate that though, because it turns out that for PhDs, the long-term unemployment rate is still like under 2% in the US. So even, even the people who get a PhD in English from like the 125th ranked program, they eventually get some sort of job outside of academia or perhaps as an administrator in academia that pays them decently. Um, I don't wanna say, I don't wanna overstate that, but they're not likely to become academics. Yeah, the thing that I may disagree with you a bit more on, although I think maybe the situation in the US is slightly different to the situation here, is when it comes to adjuncts. And I mean, you've written a lot about this over the years. So let me just kind of say that the, the, there's a thesis out there that adjuncts are a form of like exploited labor. And I, I would also add just within this conversation, and maybe it's unfair to lump them together, but I think adjuncts are one manifestation of a broader perceived trend, certainly towards more kind of short-term contract-based labor in higher education. Uh, which are precarious labor to use the the jargon that people use that that i i perceive to be problematic in various ways but adjuncts are essentially you know like people who are hired to teach particular individual courses the phrase we don't have the same concept in um in my neck of the woods we, we would call them part-time teaching assistants who are hired to teach uh, just in particular lecture courses or something like that so you know they're all many of them are well Certainly the percentage of them are current or you know, students of some kind, or maybe or who have aspirations towards uh, you know, employment in academia. One of the claims you have in the book is that many of them are not, don't actually have a, a PhD degree. Um, I'm sure that's true. But they, they're hard to do a lot of teaching by universities. There's a kind of growing reliance on them to teach courses. That's uh, one of the claims that's out there. And essentially kind of like mass higher education or the growth of higher education is partly dependent on an increase in adjunctification. Adjuncts are, as a result, exploited labor, often kind of have an aspiration towards greater employment, but never attain it and have you know, pretty poor job conditions or benefits and so forth and are, are in, in a sense underpaid for the amount of work that they, have, they do for universities. That's the sort of gist of, of the claim. You dispute all of that. So maybe you can explain why that view is wrong. Yeah, I, I'm partly on board with that. Um, and I do think, I, I don't want to say they're exploited, but I do think that the fact that we have so many adjuncts is evidence of something fishy going on. And if anything, I find it, I, I, you know, I find it kind of delightful in a sort of gruesome way because academia is filled with highly left-wing people, especially say in the English departments or the MLA disciplines, uh, the Modern Language Association type disciplines. You have these extremely left-wing faculty who espouse all of these anti-market attitudes, who talk about equality and so on, but then they work in this incredibly hierarchical structure. And the funding model that is really common in the US, um, I don't know about Ireland in particular, I suspect that it works out to be the same there though, um, is that you come to college, you're forced to take three or four classes in basic writing skills. Those classes are taught by adjunct professors who are paid only a few thousand dollars per the entire semester. 
I mean, the, the typical adjunct in the U.S. makes less per semester, per class per semester than I make per week. That's how bad their pay is. Um, and uh, then like what happens is the unit, that department will get all this money because in the U.S. for most universities, the more students you have, the more money you get from the university to your department. So effectively, you have these like low paid people who teach these classes that you don't want to teach. And then all that money ends up going to like the higher status professors to teach smaller classes and to do research and so on. I, I do think that there's something shady about that. Um, and it's worrisome. I also agree that admins, administrators have a perverse incentive to have uh, more contract labor. From their perspective, it's really useful if faculty are kind of interchangeable with, with one another, if they basically shut up and stop doing research and stop doing the things that like might piss people off. Um, and all classes are kind of uniform. And so having a kind of contract labor model is from useful from an administrative perspective. And in the book, I won't, we'll get too much into it here, I guess, but in the book, I talk a lot about uh, the conflict between faculty and admin in terms of like what their incentive structure is, how they see the university, what would be good for them, what would be bad for them. So I, I do think all of that is going on. Um, and, and so part of me really wants to endorse the exploitation thesis in part because it's, it's really kind of sexy if it turns out all these Marxist professors are, are basically depending upon exploited labor, right? They're, they're like teaching their 300 level classes and like applied Marxism. And then all of their funding is coming from taking advantage of like their lower status colleagues. So I, I, I do have this really strong desire to kind of like go along with that and be like, haha, you're doing it too. I knew you were insincere, you bastards. But here's my, some of my worries about that. Uh, we have to tone it down at least a little bit for these reasons. One, um, it turns out when you just calculate how much time, if, if you take if you take the typical person who's adjuncting and you compare that to people who are in teaching centric positions and you look at what their pay per hour is and their total compensation per hour, they're surprisingly similar, right? It's not, you might be like, well, what if you compare the typical adjunct in terms of their pay per hour to someone like me who's like, you know, an endowed chair full professor at a, at a rich university and our pay per hour. No, my pay per hour is a lot higher, though. If you think about how much I get paid for teaching in particular, and you compare that to what we pay our adjuncts who do teaching, actually, that works out to be roughly the same. It's surprising. So on an hourly basis, um, they're maybe getting paid something like 33% less, if even that, um, when you compare like full time, like adjuncts to people who spend their time doing teaching. Right. So sometimes a lot of these comparisons are about like comparing uh, uh, sort of like the equivalent of, I don't know, like a, a double. This, this is actually not a good example because it's too American centric, but like a, a training league sports player to someone who's like a superstar in whatever sport you're looking at. Um, and if you make that comparison, they look very different. But you're, those really isn't the proper comparison. So look at full time teachers who are who have long term jobs versus full like people who are adjuncts who don't look at how much time they actually spend teaching, how much do they get paid per hour, and it's surprisingly similar. There's also the fact that adjuncts, you know, because people make this comparison to adjuncts and say, uh, I don't know, workers in sweatshops, and I just, I find that super offensive. If you make that sweat, like, I, please punch yourself in the face if you're, if you feel like making that, like, just do me a favor and take a fist right up your nose, do it till it hurts. Like, you're not at all like that. People who are working in sweatshops in the third world are people who have only crappy options, all of their options suck and the sweatshop is the best option they have and they take that. If you're the kind of person who becomes an adjunct, you are smart, you're good at reasoning, reading, you have like a lot of education, the world is your oyster and you have all sorts of opportunities. So overwhelmingly it works out that people who adjunct are doing it because they have a very strong preference for being in academia 
not because it's the only job they can get. They could have gotten all sorts of jobs. And, and I got, for some reason, people got really mad at me about this. I'm like, literally you could go work at Geico. And they were like, how dare you suggest we work at Geico? And like, I worked at Geico, Geico's great. They pay well and it's a really moral company. Uh, it's much better than academia. Like it's a great life. If you think your life is miserable, quit and go do something else. So I think the fact that they have exit options really changes things. They're not people who are, be given, who are given a bad deal because they have no other options. They're people who are given you know, not that great of a deal because they have a really strong preference for taking that deal over all the other good deals out there that they could take instead. Um, and finally, it's important that uh, we recognize that um, most people who are adjuncting in the U.S. are not eligible for long-term positions. The percentage of them that have 10, like terminal degrees, like a PhD, is actually quite low. It depends, it varies from field to field, but it works out to be roughly about 30% or less. So uh, they're not people who who are like, you know, a PhD, but they're not getting the tenure track job. It's usually people with a master's degree or like a graduate student or moonlighting professionals and so on. So there are elements of exploitation there. I mentioned them to begin with, um, but I think there are things that detract from that thesis where we really can't compare an adjunct to a sweatshop worker. Yeah, so I mean, there's kind of two, two key features to that argument for me anyway. One is that when you actually break it down in terms of like the per hour pay of an adjunct to somebody in a teaching intensive job, it's roughly equivalent. And I, I mean, I was working at that for my own university, the rates of pay. So like I, my salary kind of breaks down probably to about 50 euro per hour, right? That's how much I get paid at the moment. Uh, probably, and it, you know, I'm subject to increments and all that. So it'll go up over time. But um, the typical part-time teaching assistant gets paid at 47 euro officially per hour taught. Um, so that, that it's, they are equivalent, um, to each other. Um, but it's kind of, there's two, there's an, one counter argument to that, which is that actually the official kind of hours that they're paid for, at least in the kind of contracts that we have, does not actually represent the, the real workload that they do, they put in. And I know, I know you kind of wrote about this, maybe not in the book specifically, but years ago on, online, you wrote about this as well, that maybe some adjuncts are putting in far too much work and they should, they should put in less less work than they're doing and in terms of like the preparation hours that they're putting in and so forth. So that's one part of it. But then the other part to your argument is that they have good exit options. Um, and that, I think that was a language that you, I don't know if you used it in, in the book that you wrote with Philip, but you used it in some other posts that you wrote years ago, I think, if I, re I remember correctly. And, you know, part of me agrees with that, but this is where like, I, I think my, my moral unease about adjuncts is probably similar to yours, but my experience is that I feel that some of the adjuncts that, are, that we have hired in my university, in my department, are often like strung out on these contracts for years under some impression that they might be considered for a permanent job at some point in time or a teaching job. But then actually they just kind of get cycled out of the system uh, and they're, all, they're hired by people because they get research funding and they get bought out of teaching. And there is this sort of strange, maybe two-facedness to it all that the people who care about social justice are hiring part-time labor on a somewhat a dubious basis to buy out their own teaching time and they never seem to be too worried or complain about that and they still seek funding or whatever for for that purpose yeah but it's, that's the thing that worries me is that there's a sort of misimpression created for them or a that they're not actually encouraged to seek those exit options people are, don't give them honest advice that it, you know if you keep spending all your time teaching courses, you're not going to be able to invest the time in publishing articles that might get you hired somewhere. 
And I just feel like there should be more honesty with them as a result. Yeah, I think that's a great analysis. Um, I, I don't think it works out to be a truly exploitative practice, even though it has some elements of exploitation in it. But you're right. A lot of what's going on is dishonesty and a lack of disclosure uh, and, you know, sort of allowing people to accept the mythology. Right. And you need to recognize and they need to recognize that and be told, I think, that their chances of being kept on are pretty slim. You know, I, we sometimes have visiting faculty and um, adjunct faculty and so on. And I think we're pretty upright and upfront with them that, like, you're not going to be converted to tenure track um, if we did have a tenure track position in the department, you're not someone who'd be competitive for it. You're being brought in to teach. Um, and I think that helps. I mean, they, it might be dispiriting to hear that, but it prevents them from like laboring under the illusion that, well, I'm going to do all this extra work to ingratiate myself to these people who will then in turn reward me by making me one of them. They know that that's not going to happen. And so uh, that makes the whole system more honest. And it would be nice if academia were like that in general. I think there's an incredible amount of pretense in academia where People don't tell each other the truth. Uh, and that makes the whole system really shady. You know, I, I think I mentioned early on when we first started talking that um, I spend time in my classes talking about what they get out of academia, what the research says. And I, I used to teach a class on entrepreneurship and literally the first three days of class were uh, showing them just because you come to a business school, we will not teach you how to make extra normal profits. We don't know how to do that. And if someone tells you that they do, here's why you should assume that they're lying. Like here's good evidence for that. Um, here's, you, we will actually not make you particularly good at business and uh, we will, we, this is what we will do for you. So I, I try to like teach them like in the first three days, this is what you can expect to get out of the university. And once you know that it might be a little bit upsetting but you're also liberated and you're not operating under any illusions. Um, I think many of the business ethics problems of academia could be fixed if only schools were more forthcoming, if only maybe they were held to the standards that we hold drug companies and insurance companies and law firms and others where uh, there's, there's much more of a buyer beware attitude in academia than there is in other firms and other industries. It's surprising because we think of ourselves as so moral, but the reality is that we, we kind of don't disclose the truth to most of our kind of stakeholders. Yeah, I mean, look, I know you have to go. So let me just throw one last question at you and you can answer as briefly as you like. One of the points I think in your book is that you know, there's a problem with the institutional structure of academia, right? It's a system of perverse incentives or several perverse incentives. Is it possible to be an ethical individual academic inside this you know, morally bankrupt or dubious set of institutions. How do we think about that? Yeah, that's a massive puzzle. And I, I don't really know how to answer it. Um, because, uh, you know, there's this attitude that says, like, if you're participating in a system that's corrupt, then by necessity, you're you have dirty hands, and you're furthering that kind of corruption. And that's a claim against you. Um, we've all kind of heard that argument from like, Williams and others who've said something like that. There's also an argument that says um, you have to think on the margin and think about what is your marginal impact if you enter the system and if you don't. If you if you can make things better and you enter the system and make it better than it otherwise would be, then you made the world a better place. And if you don't, then you'll be replaced by someone who is just going to go and play along with it. So you know, for me, I, you know, and maybe this is just kind of self-congratulatory. Maybe this is an excuse, but I think of it as what am I doing 
am, am I better than the next best person when it, on these ethical issues? You know, so things like I, I know there's something wrong with the way that we grade and that way we teach so that I'm going to modify my grading and teaching procedures and try to change the rules to reflect the truth about how people learn and rather than just accepting what everyone has done in the past. Am I going to be more forthcoming about people's chances in academia. I mean, I have people contact me all the time who want to become professors and like want to study with me. And I'm like, here's the here's the numbers. Like, are you sure you really want to do this? And I often dissuade those people from going. So um, am I am I being more forthcoming? Am I making a is my marginal impact positive? Am I swaying the, the thing in the right direction? Um, is I don't know if that's good enough. I really don't. I struggle with that. Um, I do really worry about whether I'm I think overall the business ethics of higher education is really quite bad. I think the typical university around the world from an ethical standpoint is significantly worse than the typical drug company or pharmaceutical company. So I do worry about like, maybe it's not, that's not good enough and our, my hands are dirty and I'm leading a corrupt life. Um, and maybe it's only a partial consolation if I think that I'm trying to improve it on the margins and trying to make it more ethical than it otherwise would be. I think that's a good place to leave it with a, I mean, somewhat dispiriting note, perhaps. Uh, but yeah, that was great. Thanks for that, Jason. Yeah, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it.